Radio. The Church, Knowing the Truth. A talk by Professor Drake McAllister at the Immaculate Mission School 2013, held at St. Thomas Beckett Parish in Lewisham, Sydney. 1 Timothy 3.15. And there's more to the verse, but we're just honing in on the, the specific part of the verse. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. All right, so 1 Timothy 3.15. Let's say it together. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Again, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Christ came to give the gospel. The Holy Spirit came to make the gospel active in our lives. The church is here to preserve, protect, defend, and hand on the fullness of that truth. So I've given kind of the subtitle, my my augmented subtitle today is the church knowing the truth. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think of church. There's a building over there. There's hard pews. There's silence. Uh, if, is it a location? Do you think of people? Do you think of Rome? I don't, I'm not sure what you think of. But before I was Catholic, when I thought of church, really my only concept was any person who believes in Jesus is the church. So I didn't see the church as a something, as a concrete something. It was, it was a relational venture. Now, that's not bad. It's, it's, it's not that it isn't that. It is that. But that's all I saw it as. And in fact, I saw structure as problematic in relation to the church. The more structure we have, the less church we have. The more structure we have, the more man-made it becomes. The more structure there is, the less uh, led by the Holy Spirit it is. And in fact, we were so concerned with being led by the Holy Spirit when I was, before being Catholic, and when I was doing a lot of praise and worship, I mean, we would have real honest debates between, uh, you know, worship leaders and going, how far in advance of Sunday can you plan out what songs to sing? Because, like, should you just plan them, like, an hour before service? So then you have the freshest revelation of the Holy Spirit? Or should you plan it, like, on Saturday before Sunday? Or could you plan as far out as Wednesday for next Sunday? Or is that, like, no, the Holy Spirit, there's no way he can speak that far in advance. And, you know, then I become Catholic and, like, what are you talking about? We've got the readings planned out forever. (laughs) It's like okay, this is, this is Christianity on a whole new level. What do you mean the Holy Spirit can work through organization? What, what are you talking about? So before I was being Catholic, I was in my, in my uh, undergraduate college, and I had to take a speech class, and I was at a secular college, and uh, we had to do a persuasive speech. And you got to choose the topic of the persuasive speech and then try and make, uh, make the speech to the class. Now, the... Uh, And here's the way it worked. I got to pick the topic, and then the instructor would would assign me a fictitious 
audience that I had to then pretend to deliver it to in class. But I had to go research the audience to prepare for my speech. So being the zealous Christian that I was at the time, I figured, okay, here's the speech I'm going to do. It was titled Christianity, Relationship, Not Religion. Because religion was always a bad word growing up. So Christianity, relationship, not religion. Relationship was all led by the Spirit, you know, people-centered. Religion is like structures, forms, organization. That's bad. So then the instructor, he assigned me this fictitious group that I then had to go research to prepare to give my speech to this group. (laughs) The Lord was totally setting me up for a long time before I became Catholic. This instructor at the secular university assigns me to go research the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I had no idea what that even was. I didn't even know what a bishop was. So I had to go do research on the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And I went and found a Catholic church and went and interviewed a priest and kind of talked to them, found out what's going on in the church. And I mean, this is probably, you know, uh, a good 15 years before I actually become Catholic. There's, I mean, I, my, my, my whole journey is kind of strange. I'm getting, you know, Marian vision from Protestant guys. I'm getting, you know, Catholic assignments from secular teachers and and uh, so I had to go learn about the Catholic Church a little bit and come back and then and made my speech. So I made my persuasive speech, and then the class gets to ask questions along with the instructor. And so his first question to me, and, and this was part of the exercise, you had to learn to take a question, restate the question, and then answer it. And he was trying to teach us, don't just react. When somebody challenges you, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, well, that's, that's, you're not thinking. You're, you want to hear the question. Restate it, make sure you understand it, then address the question. And so he set me up. He, uh, so I finished my whole speech, and then he raises his hand and says, so do you deny that Jesus gave Peter the keys to the church and established him as head of the church? I didn't even, I, I just went into defense mode. I didn't hear it, I didn't restate, I, nothing. I was like, what? No, and I just like, and I was like, eh, fail. Uh, <laughs> and he just, he just reeled me in like a fish in the, in the ocean. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And, uh, and later, I've never forgot that event. And later, I've reflected on that thinking, I know that guy was Catholic. He was like, I I'm going to take this punk down a couple notches, he was thinking. And, uh, and here's what he taught me that day. I was presuming structure and relationship do not go together. And then he honed in on the very quintessential essence of the Catholic Church, Peter. And he just hones in on Peter as the rock that Jesus gave the keys and establish the church. And I, I didn't know what to do, because that was totally out of my, 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 edu- my Christian education. And so, I've never forgotten that. And as I journeyed into the church, I've reflected on that event, and there's some other ones along the way, these random events that I've had over the years, where uh, the Lord was planting seeds in me to say, Drake, the church is not something to run from, it is something to embrace. Because that's 
where I'm at. Why? Because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, let's, um, let's jump into it today. So, I've, I put on your note sheet, I've got a couple of different categories here, and I want to unpack some things. So, here's what I want to start with. Peter as head of the church. Last night, or the other night in my testimony, I talked a bit about... Um, uh, about the church and the church's role. And I want to unpack a little bit more about Peter. But before I do, let's see, because um, there's a couple different things I can cover, but I, I want to cover what's needed. How many at all have ever heard the question and or argument about Peter as rock and then sometimes the challenge of, well, Peter's the small stone, Jesus is the big stone. How many are aware? Okay, there's enough hands here that I, I want to go through this because I want I want to give you not only some formative pieces for yourself to hopefully draw you deeper in faith, but also give you some tools how to talk about this with others. So you got Bibles? Get your Bibles? Let's flip to Matthew. All right, Matthew 16. All right, we're Jesus and Peter. So uh, let's, let's start with verse 17. So Peter asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. So 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as Catholics, the, we believe there is an objective church, objectively started by Jesus, and he established Peter to be the head. And Peter is the rock on which the church is built. Now, sometimes people will give various critiques and say, Peter, you are rock. So let's, let's get back here. Verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And they will try and assert that the this rock, Jesus is pointing back to himself. You are Peter... And on this rock, Jesus, I will build my church. Why? Because Scripture refers to Jesus as the rock. That's clear. That's subjective. We believe that. We say amen. In talking about the Old Testament, the Scriptures tell us that when Moses struck the water and the water poured and the rock and the rock poured forth water, that rock was Christ. He is the unmovable rock. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. So the question is, though, is that a worthy assertion? Is Peter not the rock on whom the church will be built? So let's take a look at this real quick. And I'm not going to dig super deep into this, but I, because I'm going to get a little bit into Greek, and even less, and a little bit of Aramaic. And if you're more interested, that'll give you enough pieces for you to dig in. But uh, here's, the, here's the deal. Uh, the ch All right, the deal is I'm breaking the mic. Okay, so, so Jesus says, you are Peter. And then he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. So if, if uh, you probably know that the, all the New Testament is written in Greek, not English, right? Okay, um, so the Greek for Peter 
Petra. When I was a kid, there was a Christian band named Petra. Oh, yeah. It was the best band ever. Not really. Um, and rock... Yes, question? Oh, thank you. I actually, thank you. I had them backwards. Excuse me. Petros. And rock, thank you, is Petra. So now, Petros, Peter, in the Greek, does mean stone or small stone. It could be translated stone or small stone. Rock, Petra in the Greek, when you go look, is just stone or large stone. So sometimes people will say, Peter is the small stone, Jesus is the big stone. So clearly we're building on Jesus, not on Peter. And they'll say it's just the statement of faith from Peter. So... But if you go one level deeper and realize that just as the scriptures were not written in English, neither was Jesus and Peter speaking in Greek. They wouldn't have been talking Greek to each other. They would have been speaking Aramaic. So Peter and Rock in Aramaic and similar Hebrew, Cephas. Or Cephas, if you've, uh, sorry, did I leave it? I left an F, H out, sorry. If you've watched The Passion of the Christ, Peter's always, uh, it, it, they don't say Petros, they say Kepha. Kepha. Now, Cephas, or, or Cephas, this, in the Aramaic, would be the same for Peter and for Rock. You wouldn't get two different words. Jesus would have said, you are Cephas, and on this Cephas, I will build my church. He would have used the same word both times. So the, the natural question is, and we'll, this is as far as it'll go unless there's questions, why does it change in the Greek? if we believe this is the inspired word of God. The Greek is a very precise language. There is no slang like we do here in Aussie land. Uh, it seems like you go overboard to figure how you can alter the English language. The Greeks were the other way. They were very extremely precise. You would never give a guy a girl's name. Petros is the masculine ending which is applied to a guy. Petra is the feminine ending. You're never going to call a guy, you're Petra. That would have been bad news. Like, Jesus, what's up with that? No, I'm not doing Petra. So Petros is how you would call a guy. Petra is how you would call a girl. This Petra is the natural word for rock, but being applied to a guy, it had to be put in the masculine form, Petros. Peter is the rock on which the church was built. And in fact, if you open your Bible, uh, your online Bible, electronic dictionary, or, I mean, electronic Bible, and search for Cephas, you'll find this word elsewhere in the New Testament where it's not translated in the Greek, and, it's, and Peter is just called 
Cephas. And it's, it happens, I've got the references. If you would like that, I can show you those later. Um, and so uh, Paul refers to Peter many times in the Aramaic term. Peter is the rock on which the church is built. The church is. Sorry. The pillar and foundation of truth with Peter as its head. And as Peter established as his head, we'll see, I'm, I'm moving on. Any questions here? All right. With Peter established as the head of the church, when you read through the book of Acts, you see Peter after Peter after Peter after Peter leading the church in profound ways. Now, I went through one just the other day, right? Acts 2. Pentecost, Peter preaches, he gives the first gospel message, 3,000 into the church. You see, time after time, Peter is leading the church into a whole series of firsts. And I want to connect you with one more first that Peter does because it has a direct bearing on all of us. All right, so flip over a couple of books to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 10. So we read in Acts 2, the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is that important? Because when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So, anybody here of Jewish? Nobody, not one. Wow. (laughs) Jeff, you're like, sort of? Can you be sort of of Jewish descent? I see. Now I understand the this. Okay. It's, it's ish. Heavy on the ish. Okay. Um, so here's what's amazing. Jesus so believed that the spirit of truth would guide them into all the truth, he did not have to tell the, the apostles everything. He didn't teach them everything they needed to know. He taught them what was essential for them to know before he went back to heaven. Because when he went to heaven, he knew the Holy Spirit would continue to teach them what they needed to know and teach them authoritatively. So let's look at Acts chapter 10. I want to read the first verse and then we're going to jump down. Acts 10.1, here's what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion that was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying, Cornelius! And he he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended to as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. So you have a man who is not Jewish, he's not Christian, he was a pagan, but he prayed to God regularly and he served the poor, he gave alms. He sees a vision, call Peter. Peter, and we won't unpack the whole thing here, Peter then also, as you keep reading the chapter, he has a vision where God says, go to the Gentiles. And what's Peter's first response? He says, no way, Lord. 
I'm a Jew. I'm not going to go to the Gentiles. Those are, they're unclean. So here's what you have to remember just for a moment. I mean, this is, this is, this, these are like major biblical brain teasers here. Jesus goes back to heaven, establishes the apostles, they start the church, and after a while, Jesus calls them to the Gentiles, and this is new information for Peter. You would think that's kind of important for Jesus to make clear, you know, somewhere as he's ascending in heaven, by the way, the gospel's for everybody. Now you look in hindsight, it's very clear in the teachings of Jesus, but he did not explicitly tell them this is for every single person, Jew and or Gentile. Because Peter is surprised by this encounter. I find that amazing. Because if it wasn't for this encounter, you and I wouldn't be here. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. Because in the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Peter goes, preaches to those Gentiles, they receive the Holy Spirit, they get baptized, he comes back to the apostles... And then he has to make defense to the rest of the apostles why he's now preaching to the Gentiles. Because they're going, what's going on, Peter? So he explains to them. They all say, praise God, the gospel's for everybody, and then they keep moving forward. When Jesus said the Spirit would guide them to all truth, he really meant it. And later on, or uh, uh, also in that Last Supper account in John, it says the Holy Spirit will call to mind all the things that Jesus taught them. So afterwards, the more they continued to live the life, the Holy Spirit was welling up in them, teaching them all those things that they heard through Jesus but never really learned. So Peter, time and time again, is leading the church very clearly, very profoundly, and with great authority. There is no way to look at the biblical account and come up with any other understanding than Peter as the head of the apostles. Peter as the head of the apostles. He speaks and teaches with great authority. So what I want to sketch out next here is just real simply how, how the church is structured. So we have Christ, and Christ established Peter, and then all the apostles. So Christ, the fullness of revelation, calls Peter, establishes the church, and along with all the apostles, and they then give the gospel to the whole world, and so we could, you know, put it down here. The faithful. So what we have today is we still have Christ as the head of the church. Right? And Peter, the successor of Peter, is the Pope. Peter went to Rome, was martyred in Rome. Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, is the Pope down to this day. So there's the Pope and, or excuse me, the, uh, and then the apostles today, 
But the apostles, the successors of all the apostles, are the bishops throughout the world. And then I'm going to put in parentheses here, along with bishops, is priest and deacon. In, in the sacrament of holy orders, we have bishops, priest, and deacon, all in the sacrament of holy orders. So Christ, the head of the church, Pope, the head of the church on earth, the bishops, the head of the church in their each respective areas throughout the world, priests, head in their local congregations, wherever they're assigned, and deacons serve the bishops in their respective roles, however the bishops assign them. And then you still have the faithful. So this is the basic structure that Christ has given for the church. Now what's essential here is that there is structure. And it is structured intentionally to do what? Protect, defend, and hand on the truth. Protect, defend, and hand on the truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let's say that again together so it gets in your brain. Ready? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. Whenever you're trying to find any of the T's in your Bible, Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians, all the T's are together. So yeah, it's one little trick you can remember. If you find one of the T's, you know the other T's got to be somewhere nearby. They didn't split up the T's. I don't know if they did it on purpose, but it works out well. Okay, let's go. So here's just basic structure of the church. Christ, Pope, bishops, faithful. Pope, universal authority in the earth, bishops, regional authority, and there's a lot more we could do uh, with that, but we'll, uh, we'll move on here. And I want to I talk about the next point on identifying truth. Any questions here as we move on? Great. That's a beautiful question. So that's, that you, you'll find that in Galatians, the, uh, the, the drama between Peter and Paul. Um, you find that in Galatians where... Um, uh, Galatians chapter 2, where Paul rebukes Peter. Yes? Thank you. The question was, for those in the back, uh, many Protestants assert that because Paul rebuked Peter in Galatians 2, doesn't that show that Peter is, is failing in faith and morals? And if so, how could he then be the Pope and everything that we say he is? Um, so, you can read that in Galatians 2, the interaction between Paul and Peter. The story in short is, Peter is hanging out with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles. The Jews show up. Peter caves into fear because it's still not culturally acceptable to eat with Gentiles as a Jew. So then he steps away from the Gentiles and only hangs out with the Jews. Paul comes and sees Peter selling out the gospel and goes, wait a minute. Just a second ago, you're eating with the Gentiles. Now, you won't. You're just hanging out with the Jews. And he says he publicly rebukes Peter in front of everybody. And uh, so the question is, does this take away from Peter as Pope, as head of the church? So the answer is no, and let me explain why. We do not say that the Pope is impeccable, meaning that the Pope is without sin. That is not a Catholic teaching. There's been some horrible Popes in history. 
whoo, doggy. I mean, some, some real reprobate characters. Um, there's been horrible priests. There's been horrible bishops. There's been horrible religious sisters. None of that has anything to do with the objective nature of truth in the church. So, what we say about Peter as Pope is he's head of the church, and it's not based on his holiness, it's based on the holiness of Christ working through him. And I didn't get into this, but I'll say it in passing because it relates, that we talk about the Pope being infallible, meaning incapable of making a statement in error, but that doesn't mean anything the Pope says is without error. So if Pope says, uh, um, do you have Twinkies in Australia? So I'm trying to think, what's an Australian junk food? Yeah, there you go. If the Pope says, I like Maccas, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, there you go, Maccas, the uh, official snack food of the Catholic Church, everybody must now go get a Big Mac. Um, no, he can say all kinds of stuff that he would like or not like or do or not do. And uh, some of that could be totally fine, neutral, some of that if, if he erred into sin. Uh, we don't say that it is he's infallible in everything he does. We say that when he makes a pronouncement on faith and morals and intends to define it for the whole church, he, can, he is without error. So with Peter and Paul, Peter's just being a knucklehead. He's just giving in to fear. He's not trying to teach. He's not trying to do anything authoritative. He's just sinning, falling short. That's all there is to it. We have never claimed that the Pope is without sin, that the Pope is perfect, and that the Pope will be uh, free from sin. Um, so that would be an, a short reply. The difference between impeccability, which is without sin, and infallibility, meaning enabled and capable of making a statement uh, in error, and that's only when defining things very specifically and authoritatively in the church. So I want to hit this second point here. The church identifies truth. Now, I already went through Matthew 16, you're on this rock, I build a church. What does Jesus also say in there? And the gates of hell will not prevail. He tells Peter this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So by that we've understood that Jesus says, this is back in Matthew 16, that Jesus promises hell, Satan, will have no victory against the church. By that we understand if the church was able to teach officially something that was untrue, if they could officially teach Jesus is not God, that would be a victory for Satan. That would be a victory for the kingdom of darkness. So by Jesus saying, the gates of hell will not prevail, meaning there is no time that Satan will have any victory in the church to cause her to definitively teach error. Now again, individuals can fall short. People can be saints, they can be sinners. But in the church, the authority of truth will be protected. The Spirit will reveal the truth, 
And, and the church will be the pillar and foundation of the truth. It will protect the truth. In uh, when I shared my witness story the other night, I went briefly through, and I won't go through it all again, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, so how do you sin? Not because I'm a bad artist. You sin in a matter of faith and morals. I've stolen from you or I'm denying the faith. So what do you do? You correct your brother first. That doesn't work. Take two or three. You bring more correction. If that doesn't work, then it says you take it to the church so that there is somewhere there where there is an objective authority to understand what is true. And that was, since we weren't taking notes the other night, I just want to just say, so that was Matthew 18 and 15 through 20. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20, if you want to write that down as far as Jesus talking about the church. Now what's interesting is Jesus only mentions the church twice in the Gospels. That's it. One is Matthew 16, Peter you're, on, you're the rock, I'll build the church. And the second is Matthew 18, how to deal with sin. Those are the only two times Jesus mentions the church. So, this point is the church identifies truth. So it's not that the church makes something true. So this, I want to make sure this is clear. There's, the church uh, can't, you know, take a look at this cup, and we know it's a cup, and they... Uh, Pope makes an infallible declaration, this is a plate. And we now know this is true because I've declared it to be a plate. Um, no, the church cannot make something true that was formerly untrue. All the church does is identify the truth. One plus one is true whether you know it or not. Your math teacher one day helped identify for you that one plus one was two, taught you how to get there, and you're like, oh, okay, I understand that. That makes sense. So, what the Pope does not do and the church does not do is make things true. They identify the truth. Now, if you get a chance to talk to Protestant brothers and sisters and they ask you this whole thing about the nature of the church and, and uh, uh, authority in the Pope and all that stuff, why do you need a church? Why do you need the Catholic church? You can, you can uh, take them through just a little exercise and ask them this question. Because... Our Old Testaments are, are a little different. They've got seven less books in the Old Testament. Don't worry about that one. Just ignore that one. The New Testament between Catholics and Protestants is identical. And just ask them this question. Do you believe that the Bible is inspired? They'll probably say yes. And then you say, how do you know what books go in the New Testament? How do you know what books go in the New Testament? And they might say something, well, you know, the inspired books, the books that had authority. Okay. How do you know any one of these books is inspired or has authority? And at that point, they probably will have no idea, may say something. There was a point in time somebody asked me this question, and I had no idea. I was thinking, well, I don't know. The apostles went down to the bookstore and bought their Bible and started using it or something. I mean... I just had never thought, where did it come from? Or, you know, Revelation is the last book, right? So, and often people will cite, anyone who adds words to this book will be condemned, where John says in Revelation, as if John had the whole of the New Testament all the way through Jude, and he pinned the last word in Revelation, the Bible is complete. 
It didn't happen that way at all. In fact, the list of books as we know it in the New Testament, here's where it, here's for the first time in history do we see anybody write down the books in the order that we have. Three sixty-seven A.D. Jesus, thirty-three. We've got over three hundred years before we have any official written record of the New Testament exactly as we have it today. Up to that time, some books were excluded. Other books that we don't have in here were included. Certain books were always considered authoritative and inspired. But Athanasius, 367 AD, and then over the next 20 or 30 years, there's a couple of other councils, and Pope Damasus is involved here, and they, they finalize the canon. They finalize the canon of Scripture. And what the church did in this time, they did not make a particular book inspired. They simply identified what was true because why? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The Holy Spirit was given to the church to lead and guide them into all the truth. So they are able to identify the truth, just like the apostles discovering, oh, Gentiles can receive the gospel too. That was new information. They were able to identify what was inspired. And so it's a good exercise for your Protestant brothers and sisters to discover how did you get this. And what it comes down to is this. Yes, the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding, but at some point, men, people, led by the Holy Spirit, had to make an authoritative decision about what was true or untrue. And that is the church. Sometimes they'll say, well, the Holy Spirit just led them to the Scriptures. Well, but still, people had to authoritatively say, this is true, this is not true. And that's what the church does. They don't make it true. They identify the truth. Matthew 16, 18 are key scriptures there. Now, let's go one more point here because we're getting a little low on time. This third point here, the church keeps the truth without change because this is where the rubber really meets the road for you and for me. The church keeps the truth without change. I'm going to leave this up here. Keeps the truth without change. Uh, how many of you know, this is rhetorical, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know that it's a difficult time to be a Christian? It's, it's strange to live the Christian life. To say, do not have sex until you are married. It's like, what do you have, two heads? You've got to be kidding me. To say, once you are married, you get to stay married forever. You must have three heads. To say, once you're married, actually, don't use contraception. <laughs> You are definitely from another planet. We definitely know you're not of this world, which is kind of true. All right. Um, 
The other hot button issue, to say that who are you to say that a man cannot marry another man? You angry bigot, you. Who are you to say that Christianity is any better than Islam, than Buddha? Who are you to say the Catholic Church has more truth than the Jesus-loving Protestants? It's a difficult time to be a Christian. And it's getting more and more difficult. The The church is crucial in this time for you and me, for our salvation. Why? Because the church not only identifies the truth, but keeps the truth without change. Now, I want to give you one really profound example of this. And this is a profound example of the Pope in action and the power and authority of the Holy Spirit working through the Pope in the church for the benefit of the whole world. And this specifically deals with the moral issues of the day. Now, in my country, in the United States, right now, Christianity is just getting smacked up against the wall with our current healthcare legislation. And our president is dead set on requiring all religious organizations to pay for contraception in their health insurance plan, regardless of what you believe. And the, the problem is, is not only is contraception bad in and of itself, but the fact that there's many contraceptive methods that cause abortions, that then they're forcing Christians to pay for abortions. So many of you, and many people, maybe even you, may be thinking, listen, what is the deal with contraception? Why is it, why is it so bad? Now, I've got a whole another testimony story on contraception, how that was powerful in my wife and I's life as we came into the church, which I won't tell here. But back in 1968, the dawn of the sexual revolution, people were pressing the church. There's the pill. The pill is new. The pill is neat. The pill somehow allows us to maintain the dignity of the woman, but allow us to regulate birth. And so they, the church said, let's, let's look at this. Let's examine this. And they did a whole long commission, a whole long study. Most of those that made recommendations to the Pope, you know what they said? Yeah, the, the pill's okay. The majority of the theologians that had researched it said, yeah, yeah, we think, we think we're good. We can, we can do this. The Pope took all the data and then listened to the Holy Spirit. And then he writes Humana Vitae on the regulation of birth. And he defends, it wasn't new teaching, what the church has always taught forever, artificial contraception is gravely immoral. But then he pins some words that are strikingly prophetic. And you will see these words lived out, not, if not only in, if, if in, uh, maybe in your own life, you will see it in the lives of those around you. The Pope writes in this document, paragraph 17, he says, in short, if contraception is made accessible and normal for everybody, here's what he says. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way for marital infidelity 
and the general lowering of moral standards. So let's ask the question, since 1968, is there more moral fidelity, fidelity or less? Less. Are moral standards higher or lower? Lower. Okay, so Pope one, culture zero. Um, he says marital fidelity is going to increase. Why? Because now men can go have sex with other women without fear of having a child, and that opens up all kinds of problems. Now he goes on. He gets even more profound here. He says, another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due a woman. Okay, rhetorical question here again. Don't raise your hand. How many of you women feel revered by culture? How many of you feel revered every time you go to the store and try and buy a pair of pants or a shirt or underwear? And everything's designed to make you sexy. Everything's designed to make you a visual feast for men. None of it is designed to exalt you as the pinnacle, the high point of creation. That which every man should lay down his life for and sacrifice. They may forget the reverence due a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium. Physical and emotional equilibrium. I'm going to say something that's really politically incorrect. It's all the rage these days to say, listen, women should be doing everything. We should put them on the front lines, put a gun in their hand, and they can fight just like a man. Now, women can do anything. But that is to deny that you are different than me. Last night, my wife wakes me up at 3 a.m. and says, there's cockroaches in my room. Ah! She's standing on the bed. And she says, I can't take it anymore. She needed me. This is about as valiant as men get these days. I'll take down the cockroach. We have no more dragons to slay. But your Australian cockroaches are huge. You can ride those things. Women are different than men. Today, everything is ordered towards there is no difference. It's just a matter of parts. And with enough surgery, you can change that too. We've lost the reverence to a woman. And then he says, disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium, it will reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires. Pornography, magazines, internet, television. What all those things teach men is that women, you're, you, you exist for sexual gratification. And what happened to the women over those next 30, 40 years? Instead of them, through the women's liberation movement, standing up and saying, no, I, am, I have dignity, all they did was shed any last sense of dignity they had, and they just jumped right into the gutter with all the men. 
And for the secular guy, it's a great, for the secular guy living today, it's a great time to be alive. Because women have no respect for themselves. Most of the attire worn today would have been attire that a prostitute would have worn 40 years ago. And many girls, even here, sometimes walk around in clothes that you would have seen on the street. And that has just become the norm. And that's what men expect. And for some reason, women just happily accept this. Now, how could... Let's see, let me, let me read the last line. So he says, if we accept contraception, it'll reduce women to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desire. Hookup culture, sex without strings. He says, and no longer considering her, the woman, as his partner, whom he should surround with care and affection. How on earth does an unmarried old dude in a pointy hat living across the world know anything about sex and fidelity and marriage. It's because it's not an old dude in a pointy hat around the world. It's Jesus Christ speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit in the church to protect and defend the truth and to say to you, to you, to you, to you, women, you are a special creation. You do not have to be treated like a dirty rag used and thrown out. Men, you were created for greatness. You were created to lay down your life for every cherished creature, and especially our sisters. This is a profound example of the authority of the Pope teaching in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit decades before people ever knew what would happen. And there have been fewer, more accurately prophetic words penned our culture has gone into the toilet. And very few people would ever look at contraception and say, what? Contraception? How could that be? Most of them put on all kinds of other things. The issues continue, whether it's contraception, whether it's stronger moral issues, the issues of homosexuality, um, a lot of the life issues, end-of-life issues, uh, marriage, dating, relationships, vocation, all of these things. The church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is leading it. Because it is empowered by Christ. And the Pope at the head is leading us into truth. He's one to be trusted. He's one to be followed. And I'm just going to wrap up here. I'm, I'm going to skip over the church as the body of Christ. We've talked about this on and off throughout the other talks. But I'll just say a couple of concluding points here. That when we, when we look at the church, and I'll give you just a couple of, I'll give you just a couple of references um, just, just to jot down. You can put in your notes and you can read later because we, we have some good time for adoration today. So um, you can... Uh, Colossians 1.18 and 1.24, and then 1 Corinthians 12. Read that whole chapter about the body of Christ. And in that, we learn that in the church, 
All the members, that's you and I, we make up the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are his body. And how profoundly important it is, our relationship together. And that Paul will tell us in Corinthians 12, when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. We're all connected. When you smash your pinky, your whole body feels it. It's not just your one little finger. So the last thing in closing. The challenge for you is receiving the truth. The Christian faith is not one to be adjusted. You don't get to say, I like this or don't like this. I I want this piece, but not this piece. It is simply something to be received in its entirety or not at all. Jesus invites us to receive the whole truth. It is not for us to change. We see the Holy Spirit working in the church, through the church, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, leading and guiding into all the truth. Let's read all three of these together. I'll read the, I'll read the reference and let's read the verse. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. John 16.13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us your church. That thing which I saw as an absolute obstacle to relationship and intimacy. You have shown me and many others that this is the very means through which we can find true intimacy and relationship. Lord, thank you for your popes who have vigorously taught and defended the faith. Pope Paul VI, then writing Humana Vitae, thank you for giving them the courage to speak the truth in the face of a culture that condemns us. Holy Spirit, I pray for each of our individuals here at Mission School that you would help all of us to stand fast in the truth to be strong in the truth, to live for the truth. I pray that we would band together as brothers and sisters, not leaving any alone, but working together to stand and defend the faith, first in our own lives and then for others. I pray that throughout today as we have more time for silence and reflection. You would uh, open the scriptures to us. May help us be comfortable with silence as we reflect and meditate. I thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. Mother Mary, pray for us. Pray for us that we would make a full response of faith to Jesus Christ and put our trust in his church 
and especially the Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, who leads us and leads the church as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was Professor Drake McAllister with The Church, Knowing the Truth. For more talks from the Immaculate Mission School 2013, visit cradio.org.au.